I've always felt that I, you know, quite lucky to be in a discipline that I enjoyed. There's lots of boys' toys, so to speak, lots of gadgets to play with. Welcome to the Vet Times Podcast, a concise weekly topical clinical podcast from the people behind Veterinary Times. Thalmic conditions can account for between 5% and 10% of companion animal consultations. Mike Rhodes of Focus Referrals, a specialist in veterinary ophthalmology, provides advice to general practitioners and discusses types, prevalence and treatment options in this Vet Times podcast. So starting off, ophthalmic conditions, how prevalent are they? And for example, in dogs, do they tend to be very breed specific? That's a really good question. So I think looking at sort of um, ophthalmology in, in general practice, studies have quoted sort of a five, approximately 5% prevalence of ophthalmic conditions sort of walking through the door. My experience of that is, is, is probably a little bit higher. I'd say it's, it's between 5 and 10%. So, so based on these figures, you know, ocular conditions in, in, in cats and dogs is a problem that as, as a vet in, in a business or a practice you are going to come across. Um, going on to the next point about breeds, Although we're taught never to sort of diagnose um, problems based on signalment and history, I think ophthalmology is an interesting subject because a lot of the conditions we see are very breed specific. So to give you some examples on that, brachycephalic dogs, good example being the pug, are very common in, in sort of small animal ownership in, in the UK. Um, due to them having very bulgy eyes, having a condition called Lagophthalmus, which means they don't blink properly. A lot of these dogs, when they actually sleep, don't close their eyes properly, so their corneas are constantly getting damaged and exposed. But these dogs are then prone to having a lot of surface um, disease. So, for example, they can get something called pigmentary keratitis, um, a progressive sort of corneal pigmentation, which can actually affect vision in some of these dogs. These bacchospheliks are also very prone to getting ulcers, getting trauma to the surface of the eye, which then progress. And for reasons we don't fully understand, um, these ulcers can get very deep, very quickly, uh, which can lead to perforation, can lead to loss of the eye. And, and a lot of sort of my emergency cases that I see that be referred to me are often pugs or, or bacchospheliks that have had an ulcer that, that's perforated or, or gone deep very quickly. Um, other examples of breeds that, that we do see a lot of with, with eye problems, the English Bulldog and other brachycephalic, um, they are, especially the younger ones, are prone to adnexal issues, so entropion, dyspotiasis, ectopic cilia. Um, so again, they make up quite a lot of the, 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 the dogs who have eye problems. Um, we are still seeing, uh, believe it or not, um, Iotrogenic KCS in bulldogs. Right. So those cases where they have a cherry eye, a prolapse of their tear gland of their third eyelid, um, they are being excised rather than actually uh, repositioned. Um, and it's not surprising that if you remove 50% of a dog's tear production, it's going to go on to develop KCS um, when they're older. So if you do have a, uh, a relatively young bulldog with dry eye, it tends to be uh, unilateral, not really responding to medical treatment. It could be that that dog has actually had its clear ground at size. Um, another thing we are seeing more of are diabetics. 
um, in, in sort of small animal general practice. Um, studies, we know from studies that approximately 80% of dogs who develop diabetes will go on to get cataract. So a lot of these patients um, develop cataracts and then they come and see yourself because they've gone blind. And often these dogs go blind very quickly and, and therefore don't cope very well. And it can be very distressing both for the dog and the owner. I think a good tip and take-home point for diabetic dogs with cataracts is to, if, if the owners would consider cataract surgery, to, to refer early. The reason being, um, when a cataract progresses very quickly, you get something called lens-induced uveitis, which, if left unchecked, can damage the eye irreversibly, meaning we can't then operate. So um, a lot of vets, and I understand why they think this, um, rather would rather get the diabetes controlled and then refer them. But I think in, in a lot of these cases, if the, if the cataracts are formed quite quickly, it's probably better to refer them sooner, mm. even if the diabetes isn't controlled. You've also got to bear in mind, if and when we do cataract surgery, we're going to further destabilize the diabetes anyway, so we sort of have to accept um, the lesser of the evils and, and sort of try and get the eye the eyes seeing again as soon as possible. Um, final point to make on, on breeds, and again, again in dogs, it's, it's, it's not common, but if you have a, a terrier, Jack Russell, or a terrier cross, and it's got a painful eye, these dogs are prone to an inherent problem called primary lens luxation. So I always teach vet students and, and new graduate vets when they're, when they're seeing practice with me that if you have a terrier or terrier cross with a painful eye, just think about lens luxation because it's one of those conditions. If you don't diagnose it early, it's then a very difficult thing to treat um, and, and sort of resolve. So, yeah. In terms of ophthalmology cases generally, I suppose if you're a general vet, you're going to see more of these. But is it something they should be seizing on and really sort of going for it in terms of being willing to take on these cases? Or do a lot of them tend to have to be referred? I think general practitioner vets should be willing to to see these cases initially to hopefully make a diagnosis. And then I think with, with, all, with all first opinion stuff, I think it's knowing limitation so um, if you feel you've got a straightforward case a good example is um, you've got a uh, a non-complicated ulcer so you know spaniel's been running through the undergrowth it's, it's scratched its cornea mm. it's obviously a traumatic ulcer there's no plant bodies or anything you know that is something i think as a vet in practice you can diagnose you can treat and, and i don't think you need to really involve the referral process um I think just going back to how the how the the vet student training is working in the UK currently, slightly going um, on a tangent, but I think it's important to to address. Mm, mm. Ophthalmology generally is, is not taught very well in universities, right? And, and I think the reason being most most veterinary ophthalmologists um, don't work in universities, therefore, you know, they're, they're not their students aren't being exposed to. To, to that sort of type of teaching. I think what's interesting is if you look at uh, Nottingham University, obviously one of the more newer courses, with, with Heidi Featherstone and colleagues, they've really focused on uh, on the ophthalmology side of things and, and they're teaching it much earlier in the, in the course. Um, and like we've already said, you know, 5 to 10% of cases walking through a, a, a GP vet's 
small-animal door is going to be in our case. So having having that knowledge is really useful. And I can actually see that when I see vet students, when I see new graduates, I can almost sometimes predict that they went to Nottingham because you can actually see their level of knowledge is better. Really? So going, nice going, back to the, going back to the original point about... Um, when we when we're looking at sort of referring, um, I think it also depends on the the equipment that the practice has. So, for example, um, I, I go into sort of first opinion practices quite a lot in, in my current role, and we do something called a roadshow where I go and do a, a talk for practice, and they show me their equipment, and we do talk a little bit about what equipment they have and what equipment they should buy. Something that comes up a lot is a tonometer, so a, a device to measure intraocular pressure. Hmm. And, and most bosses, quite rightly, say, well, it's very expensive. I mean, you're talking about £2,500 for a ton of that, uh, which is a, quite a big investment. But I think there is a business argument to, to say, if you have this bit of equipment, you you and your colleagues will use it, especially if you make a small charge to the client. Um, and, and the feedback I get when a, when a practice does buy this equipment they use it much more than they thought. So they'll use it in a case, not necessarily just when they think it's got glaucoma, but they'll use it in a red eye. You know, it can help diagnose other conditions, such as a low intraocular pressure can be a sign of uveitis. So um, going back to the whole referral side of things, <clears throat> I think if if the GP vet does have better equipment, they can it can help them diagnose things, which can then help them make a decision about whether they refer the case or not. Or not. Um, I think in, in, in all in all first opinion cases, again, knowing one's limitations, if you have a more complicated case, if you have a case that doesn't respond to the straightforward treatment, hmm. um, then I think referral is important because um, that's where we get involved in, and we can we can really you know help make a diagnosis. One of the nice things about ophthalmology is that in that consultation that I see or, or another ophthalmology specialist sees, there's a very high chance they'll be able to diagnose that condition there and then. Okay, yeah. you compare that to other disciplines, for example, neurology. Um, <clears throat> they've got a, a patient who's off its back legs. They think they know what's going on, but that animal needs an MRI scan. It needs potentially CT analysis. It needs a lot of further tests before you can say it's definitely got this. Whereas in a consultation with my slit lamp or with my indirect ophthalmoscope, I can look at that lesion and I can say it's got X, it needs Y. And and I think that is quite important because obviously whenever we think about referrals, we think about the cost implications. We worry that our clients wouldn't be able to afford it, especially if they're not insured. But the nice thing about ophthalmology is that, you know, you, if the owner can afford the consultation, there's a very high chance they will have an answer as to what's going on. Now, obviously, the management of that problem and, and potential surgery, that, that will incur more cost. But what, what a lot of that you refer to me do is if a client hasn't got much money, they'll refer me the case. Hopefully, I'll make a diagnosis. And if it's something that can be managed, it needs more tests, it needs medical treatment, I can send it back to the vet. They can then manage it with, with my assistance and the client then doesn't have to, have to, um, invest you know massive amount of money to get to get the problem sorted and just from what you've been saying there's a great degree of satisfaction i think for a vet who can work on an ophthalmic case i mean is there sort of like some tips and advice that you could give in terms of how you start out with the with the exam i think there definitely are some practical tips 
um, of how a, a, vet in pra- a vet in practice can, can handle an eye case. I think the biggest limiting factor a general practitioner vet has is time. So yeah. they're often on t- 10, 15, 10 to 15 minute consultations. Often the client comes in with several problems um, and, and there's just not enough time to actually examine that eye and, and do what you need to do. So I always sort of say to vets when, I, when I'm giving talks, consider admitting the patient, okay? Um, take that animal away from the owner and say, look, um, I, I'm going to do a proper examination. Um, I'm going to keep, keep the dog with us um, or, or the cat, and, you know, some for cats as well. Keep, keep the patient with us for the afternoon so we can do some more tests and have a proper look. Um, I think if you've got an animal that's head shy, quite difficult to examine, I think examining them away from the owner is, is a really good idea. Um, and I think some of these patients are much better when, when the owner's not there, um, sort of making the situation worse. Another good tip is to examine the patient in a darkened room and to use a focal light source. And you can assess things like light reflexes much more reliably. You can focus in on certain lesions rather than having a well-lit room. I think that can really help. Um, another good tip is if you have a painful eye, so the animal's closing it, you can't really get near it. Um, if you put some topical local anesthetic solution into the eye, for example, is proxymetocaine, um, that, assuming the, the, the patient has a surface um, cause of the pain, for example, an ulcer or a fallen body or something, the eye will then open up. The animal will be much happier for you to look in the eye. It also gives you information about whether site of the pain is. So if, for example, it's not due to surface irritation, if there's something going on inside the eye like uveitis or high pressure like glaucoma, mm. applying the topical local anaesthetic won't change things. So if you put the local anaesthetic in the eye, the eye still closing and quite painful, that makes you think actually this isn't a surface problem, this is something going on inside the eye. So as well as helping you examine the animal, it gives you <coughs> diagnostic information about where the site of the pain is. Um, final point on this is a lot of vets, in my experience, sedate their patients in order to carry out an eye exam. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I just think sedation should be your last resort. Right. Okay. The problem with the problem with sedation is it it, it removes your ability to assess certain things, to assess vision, light reflexes, intraocular pressure to some degree. It will also affect the tear production. So actually, a lot of the more subtle things you need to ascertain, you cannot when the animal is sedated. In, in saying that, some patients are aggressive, some patients just will not keep still, and you do have to reach for the sedation. If you're going down that route, I would go for, in dogs, metatomidine and butorphanol combination, because the eye tends to stay quite central. Um, other combinations are like general anesthesia, the eye can roll down and you can't actually see the eye. Obviously, you can't do what you need to do. In cats, I tend to go for metatomidine and ketamine with an opioid as a sort of triple combination as a sedation. Again, same principle. The eyeball will stay in, in the central position. Therefore, you can look at it rather than the eye rolling away from you and then not being able to look at it. And you mentioned some of the treatment options there. Is this an area where we have seen quite a lot of innovation, would you say, in terms of the treatments and the management of ophthalmic conditions? Yeah, yeah. I think I think innovation is 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 definitely... Uh, coming into ophthalmology, um, there's some good examples. So the way I used to work, I used to work in a, in a big hospital. I was there for sort of over 10 years, and I've gone from that to being sort of a peripatetic mobile unit 
And, and one of the reasons I, I can do that is because technology has meant the equipment is more portable mm. um, and we're able to sort of do more on, on, on the move. And um, a good example is with cataract surgery. So in, in the hospital setting, we would admit the patients. We do cataract surgery and they would have an anesthetic as well as neuromuscular blockade so that the eyeballs nice and central for the surgery. Um, we then keep the patients in for two or three days and then take them home. Now I'm working, um, obviously the cataract machine, the microscope, is all portable. Uh, we can do what we call a, a subtenon's nerve block. So we actually do a local nerve block while the animal is anesthetized. And again, this is how what happens with people. So it means that the eye is paralyzed, but we're not affecting the rest of the dog dog's breathing. And I actually send the patients home the same day. Um, and, and my experience, especially with brachycephalics, is that the animals do so much better at home than in, in a stressful hospital environment. They're breathing, everything's better because they're with their owner. I think we need an owner who is committed and you know who's willing to look after a dog after it's or a cat after it's had a procedure done. But there are ways and means of doing that, um, and, and I think the patients do do much better. And I think overall the owners seem seem quite happy. Um, Another good example of innovation is something called corneal cross-linking. Mm-hmm. This is a really new new technology that's been developed in people to address a condition called keratoconus. Keratoconus is a progressive condition seen in, in young people um, whereby the cornea turns into a cone, as it sounds, and it, it has a significant effect on vision. And often... The, the people require a corneal transplant, you know, which is pretty major, major surgery. What corneal cross-linking does is it uses a UV light, a very specific wavelength, in combination with riboflavin, which is a, a liquid that is dripped onto the cornea. And what happens is there's a chemical reaction between the UV light, the riboflavin, and the um, corneal tissue so that all the collagen fibers which sit in the corneal stroma form extra bonds, little cross-links between them. And what it does is it changes the strength and rigidity of the cornea and it prevents this keratoconus progressing. Um, now, <clears throat> taking this over to our veterinary patients, this reaction has an additional benefit of, of killing any organisms, any virus particles, any uh, bacteria. So we're actually seeing a really good use for this in infectious keratitis. So if you have a a pug, like we mentioned, and it's got something called a corneal melt. This is where we have quite nasty bacteria like Pseudomonas um, attacking the cornea, releasing enzymes. Also, enzymes are released from white blood cells that are trying to defend the cornea. Um, and these enzymes lead to uh, a melting of the corneal stroma, which can lead to loss of the eye. In this situation, uh, previously, we would have had to do quite radical surgery and she saved the eye, but we wouldn't have had a very visual eye at the end of it because of all the scarring that would have developed. Um, with corneal cross-linking, we still anesthetize these patients, but we can treat this corneal melt with um, with this uh, UV light and, and dripping the riboflavin on it. It's very early days, but in, in the cases that we're using it on, it seems to um, have two effects. One is it, it kills the bugs that are causing the infection, and it also prevents the melting process and makes the, the cornea sort of much stronger. We're also using the corneal cross-linking. If we have, say, a, a focal progressive deep ulcer, 
and we want to do a corneal transposition graft, essentially filling the defect. Before, what we would have had to do is clear out all of that unhealthy tissue and then make a graft, and it means the graft is much bigger, leads to more scarring. With the corneal cross-linking, we can cross-link the, the ulcer before we do the graft, and it means we don't have to clear any cornea out because we've essentially made the, the tissue stronger and better, so we can use that tissue in our graft. Therefore, our graft is much smaller, therefore, and the vision is better. And the final use of corneal cross-linking in, in our vet new patients is in older dogs. Um, we see a condition called bullous keratopathy. So in, in older dogs, um, what can happen is that the corneal endothelium, which are the cells that line the, the inner aspect of the cornea, their, their main function is to act as water pumps. They pump out water from the cornea, keeping it nice and clear. In older dogs, these cells die off, they're not replaced. And what happens is the, the fluid from the eye leaks into the cornea and it leads to fluid accumulation in the cornea, it leads to clouding, it leads to uh, vision loss. But the, the, the issue is you get little bubbles forming in the stroma, which then cause ulceration, which then cause pain. And, and often these ulcers are very hard to treat because the underlying issue is, is the water logging. So what we do with these cases is we treat them with the corneal cross-linking, again, while they're asleep. We do an extended protocol, so it's a bit of a longer protocol. And what happens is it, it changes the strength of the corneal tissue. So even though the water's there, the bubbles can't form and therefore the ulcers can't form. Um, it's very early days, but, but some, some colleagues believe it actually reduces the amount of clouding and improves these dogs' vision. Um, but like I said, it's, it's very, very early to say. Um, the next sort of example of, of innovation is retinal reattachment surgery. This is something that I personally don't do, but I know um, there's some colleagues um, at Vetman Vision, uh, Chris Dixon and Gary Lewin, who, who are doing quite uh, a lot of retinal reattachment surgery in dogs. Um, when I did my training as a, as a resident, I was always taught that retinal reattachment surgery was possible but had very low success chances, therefore often, you know, wasn't performed. Chris and Gary are quoting success rates up to sort of 84%, which is, I think, really good. And, and I think that's something that is, is, is something that um, more dogs are definitely benefiting from. Um, a good example of a, a candidate that would be good for retinal reattachment surgery. So when we do cataract surgery in a dog, one of the known complications is that the retina can detach afterwards, meaning that you go to all that trouble, you make the dog see, and unfortunately a very low percentage of dogs, the retina detaches, they then go blind. And then normally we'd say, right, I'm sorry, there's not much we can do, but in that situation you can refer them for retinal reattachment surgery and and based on the, the, the figures that they're quoting, they can actually have a good chance of seeing again. So clearly it's an area that's continuing to evolve and there's lots of things that you can do now that you couldn't do a few years ago. Working in this area is something you must feel very strongly about. It's, it must be really interesting. It is, it is. And I've, I've always felt that, that I, you know, I'm quite lucky to, to, to be in a, in, a, um, in a discipline that I enjoy, that I think um, there's lots of boys' toys, so to speak, lots of, lots of gadgets to play with. And I think it, it's constantly changing and with all these new technologies and, and we, we, we're taking a lot of these directly from from sort of the, the human side as well. And, you know, we, we try and spend some time at, at Moorfields, uh, Eye Hospital, which is the big 
you know, internationally renowned hospital in London yes. where they do a lot of the research and they, they have meetings and they're, they're quite keen to, to talk to the vets about what we're doing, but often we're, we're sort of there trying to get new ideas about how we can transfer what's going on in people onto our animal patients. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Mike, for joining us today. There's some great information there, and I think the listeners will love all that. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's it for Vet Times Podcast this time. Thanks to our guest. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. But for now, thanks for listening. See you next time.